Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have made fascinating career changes and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. Today's inspiring guest on Freedom Hunters is Oli Ben-Goff. Oli started his first business in his 20s when he opened a bar on the King's Road in London's Chelsea. From there, he went on to set up venues which have become London institutions, including Inferno's in Clapham and Coco in Camden. Along the way, he started up the music festival Love Box with members of Groove Armada. But it was Ollie's love of foreign and independent film that led him to start up the foreign film and lifestyle TV channel Cinemoi. But how do you start a TV channel when you know nothing about the business and operations of TV? And then how do you launch it in the US when it's virtually impossible for an outsider to do just that? Ollie's entrepreneur story is an adrenaline-filled journey. He shares all the chaos, the hard work, the chance meetings with Martin Scorsese, no less, and his practical advice for anyone wanting to start their own business. And that advice applies equally to anyone looking to take a risk in their career more generally. What really comes through from Ollie's story is his belief in himself and what he does, his resilience in the face of highly pressurised situations and strategic vision for all his business ventures. It's truly inspiring. So here it is. Strap yourself in for Ollie's interview. I know you're going to enjoy it. What did you want to be when you grew up? I didn't really have, I didn't have that kind of clearer pathway or knowledge of what what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew, I mean, I was a dreamer. I knew I was, I mean, you know, I knew I was a dreamer because I wasn't really that academic. I kind of knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't exactly know what that was. I think around 16, I did draw a picture of a bar and I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I'd like to own a bar. So that was about as far as it went, but it wasn't, it wasn't that, you know, there wasn't that much research apart from like a couple of sketches where I was messing around. Yeah. And did your parents ever have expectations or put pressure on you to follow any particular career or path? I mean, my mum, my mum, you know, to be fair to my mum, she was always trying to give great guidance. But some of, you know, a lot of that went sort of in one ear and out the other. But she was there, you know, just basically trying to provide good guidance. And my dad, my dad was just super relaxed. My dad was just like, you're going to do very well and everything will be fine. So you know, kind of do do what you want to do. Yeah, and was music a big part of your childhood? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, like everyone else, yeah. I mean, I was, um, I suppose, especially, I mean, in the late, if we look at, like, especially around the early 90s and throughout the 90s, it was like hip-hop just came through. So it was like the beginning of, like, Public Enemy, Tribe Called Quest, all mm. of those artists. And then dance music in the UK, there was a, there was a new sort of Brit, British sort of wave, you know, new wave like Carl Cox and all these artists like Groove Variety. So like the, the early 90s were interesting because you had the break of hip hop and you had the break of um, dance music. So what's interesting about the 90s, I think I feel like 88 to 94 is that two genres of music really kind of grew throughout that period, which actually have lasted sort of 20, 20 years. Of course, like everyone, I was immersed in, you know, I was immersed in, in music massively. So did you ever think it would become such a huge part of your career? No, you know, actually I was, music was something I just loved and I always had on. But actually the bit that I was, I was, wasn't more passionate about, but the bit I think I understood or the bit I was, I deeply loved was, was film. So come 13, 14, I think, you know, I remember when I, when I met all my friends, they didn't know half the, I suppose the films that I knew because I'd been, I'd been watching all, all of like Scorsese's films and like I've been, watching films like Deer Hunter and Raging Bull and 1900 and some foreign films. So I was just massively into sort of indie and American cinema of the 70s. And that was something I just, I was drawn to. So I was like always watching film. And so I was always on top of like all the indie filmmakers. So then obviously Mm. when Quentin turned up in the 90s, I was sort of like, well, everyone loved, you know, Pulp Mm. Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. But I feel like I was like prepared for that in the sense of, I just watched a lot of other maverick auteur film directors. So, so yeah, I would say I was actually way more, pa- very passionate about film and I love music. So what did you go on to study then or did you go to uni? I left school, travelled and then I went to uni. 
once for a couple of months and that didn't work out because it just it wasn't my it just wasn't my fit and I knew it wasn't my fit so I was by that time I'd say I was quite good at just following already my my instinct so I kind of did what I wanted to do and as much as my family were always trying to guide me really in the end I kind of did whatever I wanted to do so by the time I got to uni I didn't feel like I had to perform for for them so because I didn't feel like I, I had to perform and I was like no no interest I left and then I thought okay maybe I, I'll go to university in London and the second time I went I went to City University I went I went for one hour so I, I remember <laughs> walking in and I thought okay maybe it's going to work in London and then the you know the the teacher he drew a big diagram on the wall what was it, what were you studying uh, it was business and in, in international affairs and I and I knew within 20 minutes that I wasn't going to do this because it was a four year it was the first hour in four years mm. but I stayed till the end of the lesson just to be polite because I wasn't going to leave in the middle of the <laughs> lesson so I stayed stayed for the full I think 60 minutes shot my books and then that was it and actually then that was clear university was over so so that was that one hour at City. And then, and then I began to travel. Um, and I just traveled for, I'd say I traveled for like two, three years. So you just, you have odd jobs, you know, you're just making things up and having a lot of fun, traveling throughout Asia, uh, the Pacific, the US. So I was just, just traveling everywhere. And then around 22, 23, it was like, well, I had to, you know, you begin to think you have to have a you have to have a career, and then I thought, okay, I've got to make some money. And a couple of friends of mine, uh, they were brokers actually um, on FX, like currency exchange. So I got a placement in this foreign exchange desk in in the city, and I lasted about three four months there because actually, kind of what I worked out is they were all very wealthy and they were all doing very well, but actually they were all pretty miserable. So. That was quite interesting because you could see how to make money, but actually the end result of making money was they were, you know, to me, it seemed kind of like an alien concept that you'd, you'd spend 10 years in a room, be unhappy, but you had a Ferrari. So for me, that was just, it was like going to university. It was like you try things and you go, no, it doesn't feel right. So I just left after three months and then I just went, um, okay, now I'm, I'm just going to open up this bar. So that was your first bar in Chelsea? Yeah, but before before Chelsea, I had to go find the bar. If you just, you know, if you're going to decide to open up a bar, it's like, you've got to go find one. Well, where, yeah, so, where do so, you start? So I found a couple of um, estate agents and then I started looking at properties. Found the, found the bar on the King's Road. It was 575 King's Road and it was like an old beaten up pub. And I don't think that, I don't think the agent actually wanted me to, he didn't really want to show me around because I was sort of like unshaven and he was like, why would I want to show you around this property? Because he wanted to, to sell it and he didn't obviously think I had the money. And I didn't, and he was right, I didn't have the money. And then I needed a business plan, didn't know how to write a business plan. So um, a friend of mine who actually got a, ma- a master's, um, I asked him to write this business plan. So he wrote the business plan. So suddenly I had a business plan, I had a location. And then I needed investors. And and I think it was it, that was it, it was for sale back in... 1999, it was, no, 1998, it was for sale for five five £575,000. Oh, you're kidding me. Which was, uh, which was a lot, yeah. Well, I guess it was a lot at the time. Yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a lot back then. Mm. And then, and I didn't have the money. So, so I was kind of, I had this business plan, had location, wasn't really getting too far. And, um, and my two friends who I went to school with, uh, um, they were in jobs. I was like, listen, guys. I think the bar is a great opportunity. I think we can do it. Um, but they obviously, you know, everyone needs to get paid. So they stayed in their jobs and I just continued making some money on the side. And then actually I got lucky. That was, it was my first bit of really big luck is that my friend, John, John Shevesland, Norwegian guy who wrote the business plan, he turned around and said, listen, Ollie, I know these guys in Ireland and Dublin and they own some bars and <clears throat> maybe they'll invest. So, so he put me into contact with them. They came to London. And to cut a long story short, we just went, we went out and we, we just got massively pissed all night. And I brought my two friends from school and I said, listen, let's go out with these Irish guys and show them a good time. So we did. And then they invited us to Dublin. 
and and that's where it got quite surreal because we 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 sat we sat at the desk in in Dublin and I think it was the first time I'd ever been to Dublin it was actually a first time I'd ever been to Dublin and um Jay and Owen turned around and went okay guys um the project's going to cost like 1.2 million we're going to borrow 900,000 we're going to put in 150 and you guys are going to put in 150 and we're going to do the project but remember we're like I think at the time we're 24 or 23, 24. So you're just kind of like nodding, going with it and just obviously you can understand, you can grasp what they've told you, but mm. you're, you're just going, okay. And you're writing down the kind of waterfall of, you know, mm. of how, how it's all going to happen. And then we went back to the hotel and we like celebrated because it was, it was like just like an amazing moment. But then, uh, then we were left with the challenge of finding the 150,000. And I suppose that that was the first, so first, first phase of like trying to make something happen is having your dream or having your project second bit is raising the money for that project and then and then the third bit is sort of living with that reality and then that reality was my two friends who I'm very very close to today you know they're great great friends but they they said oh well listen our parents are going to give us 50,000 each and um but we can't we can't help you so I was like that's fine, fair enough. But but it was an interesting equation because I'd found the project and and I'd shared the shared the business and and I was left with that challenge. And because I'd kind of always dropped out of uni and done my own thing, you know, my family were definitely not gonna help me with anything, which was <laughs> fine as well, right? There there was no I'm eighteen years old, so it wasn't like they owed me anything. They'd done enough. So I actually didn't go to them because it just, they, I, I just already knew. So I raised all the money. I just had to find my 50,000. But actually 50,000 when you don't have 50,000 pounds is a huge amount. Yeah. So how did it's you, ma- massive amount of money. how did so, you do that? So then actually what, what's interesting, if I look back at it, it was about being surrounded with some really good people and some great friends who helped me out. So one friend introduced me to a lady called Callie, um, who worked in the city. She was a really successful trader. I thought 10,000 was a fortune, but for her, 10,000 was maybe just a weekly bonus because she was a successful trader. So we went for lunch and she, and she said, listen, I'll, I'll lend you 10,000 um, on these terms. So I kind of left the lunch with 10,000, which was kind of great. Mm. And then another friend said, okay, I'll, um, I'll lend you 15,000. Because which was really nice of him because that was his inheritance. So he kind of gave me like a third of his inheritance, which is pretty. That's a good friend. Yeah, it's a great, amazing friend. Yeah, and I'm still friends with him. And then my business partner today, Alex, um, was designing bars up in up in Newcastle. So he was massively into designing bars and kind of wanted to get into ownership because he was designing them. And him, him and his brother came up with fifteen thousand. So it was, I think it was like 15,000 from them, 10,000 from Cali, 15,000 from Swithin. So now we're at 40. I found another five. You know, I, I had like five in savings. So I was up at 45,000. And it was like being at the casino. I kind of like turned up with a cash and checks and sort of gave it to the Irish, <laughs> you know. And I was fighting. I said, listen, I'm 5,000 short, but I can get that five. So it was fine. I was 5,000 short, but I, was, I had my ticket to the game. And then... We spent one year refurbishing the bar, which was an amazing experience. And actually, you know, to be fair, the Irish Irish guys led that. And they had, they had to be fair, they had really, not really impeccable taste. The Irish like to do things their way. They're, the Irish are actually quite artistic, you know, and they, mm. they, they've got their pride and their, their vision. So we were lucky enough, you know, and they, they, we were 24 and they were 34. So what was, you know, actually, I think we were lucky enough to find these two brilliant Irish entrepreneurs who are Mavericks, Jay and Aaron, who had built up a really eclectic portfolio in Dublin. So yeah, and in, in between this period, they said, okay, guys, we want you to learn, we want you to learn the trade. So you've got to come live in Dublin. So I went over to Dublin with my two friends. So in terms of like, just a journey and it being quite special, we're all living in Dublin, we've got a flat together, and we're learning the ropes. And the, you know, the Irish are tough. Because they, they take service very differently to the way we do. And what, what, what I learned there was that the speed of service, the accuracy, just the way you, it's just a, 
it was a different level and they worked you, they worked you hard and they love they love to drink Guinness for breakfast lunch afternoon tea and all the way through the night so you're just you know you're like constantly serving Guinness and you had to get very good and sharp at at speed service so so that was actually a really good way of learning what I do today sort of going to Ireland working behind the bar you know and getting your hands dirty and learning everything from the cleanup to kind of polishing the bar to doing the coffee to making the cocktails to serving the Guinness to cleaning up at four in the morning and then you do it again and again and again and again so so that that was good operationally that's where Mm. I think I really learned a high standard and so kind of left Dublin and the bar was being built as as we were working in Dublin so that went that that took about 18 months and then and then just before the millennium we opened it I remember the opening night that was that was that was pretty surreal because we were so young and then you've just got all your friends there and then and then where it was where the, the Irish lads were great they let us they knew we were kind of good with the music you know they knew we mm. were on top of the kind of the music and we had a lot of good friends and and so actually they they let us they let us art direct and do the we were the creative force behind the music and the people and then where they brought in, you know, the the where they were really, um, <clears throat> you know, where they brought this sort of huge contribution is that in the terms of the design, they, they used like <clears throat> the bank panelling from like the Bank of Ireland, you know, and the bank panelling was like two, three hundred year old mahogany. And then they brought these um, these guys who did all the staircase from Ireland and all the kind of, um, you know, the, all the craftsmanship. So between sort of all the like craftsmen and like the materials, it was a hybrid of like a classic bar, but then with this modern twist and then with music that was, that we brought in. And then, so it was a first kind of like bar, I think the first bar of its type where it was DJ led. Everyone was doing kind of like pubs and we created this bar with really strong DJ led music, which actually is so obvious now, but people just didn't do it. And was that part of your original plan? It was just, you know, what was good is like we weren't planning anything. It was just us, you know. That I think, and I think that's quite a powerful thing for any entrepreneur to. I think why entrepreneurs are very powerful in their twenties when they recognise that their spirit is they're tapped into what people want without plans and without. It's just intuition. Mm. You know, when people get older, they start doing decks and presentations and proving points, and and they get into this whole world of like proof points. But sometimes in your in your 20s you're natural and you're 10 times more dangerous because you kind of know it and you trust yourself and then you put something out there and it works so if you think like music why do so many musicians create a library of music within a three or five year period in their 20s and then sometimes never make any music ever again but that music lasts for 50 years so you know there's something in the mix or it happens with film directors they make three or four amazing films in their 20s when they know nothing because they're so sort of alive and they're trusting their instinct and then those films can last for hundreds of years so 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 your 20s are very powerful i think if you if you own it and capture it creatively and then you follow it Um, so so where did you go to from there you because you opened up a number of bars then i went down to I got a friend of mine. Was a, yeah, a friend of mine said, "Come down to Clapham to look at a toilet." It's true, and he said, "I think this bar, this toilet could be a bar, and, <laughs> like a uh, public toilet." Yeah, it's a public toilet <laughs> in Clapham, and I don't know why he thought it could be a bar, but he thought it could be like a bar because it was it was actually on the park, and he thought there was a way of I don't know turn anyway. So I went down there and checked out this toilet. No, it's just not going to happen. It's just but a it, toilet. It's just a toilet. <laughs> It's a bad toilet, you know. So, but actually, then, and it was a sunny day, and I walked down Clapham High Street, and I hadn't been down Clapham High Street before. So, I walked down Clapham High Street, and I saw this kind of cinema entrance, and so that caught my eye. And when I saw the cinema entrance, I went, I turned, sort of turned around and went down Stonehouse Street. And when you went down Stonehouse Street, you could see you could see that the building opened up all the way down Stonehouse Street. And so I took a note, and then that was it. And then a few days later, I found a way of going back down there. I found the manager, John Spencer, and I, and I said, John, can I have a look around? And it was called Southside. And Southside was like a South London institution. 
And the minute I went into the ground floor, I just kind of knew I wanted it. It was really that simple. It was just like, because it was such an amazing room and you could feel the history and it was it was like a 70s nightclub. It was like red carpet um, on the floor, I think running up the wall, mirrored walls, a disco, a disco. It was just like so out there and kitsch, but it was just had its own, it, but it still had a good feeling. And then that, that just took ages to materialise and actually didn't really happen. But I just stayed with it. I stayed with it for like six months trying to meet the owner, Michael. And then eventually I did meet him. And then he invited me to the pub. And then I, I had to spend like six months drinking in pubs down in Streatham because he used to like to hang out in pubs in Streatham. So with all his mates and his mates, they were throwback. They were, very, they were sharp, witty, smart. And they were like... They, they, they were just full of old London tales because they'd been in the club business since the 60s. And after about six months, I, I managed to get Michael to go to do a deal. And he was pretty sure I was going to fail. So he was like, well, actually, why don't you just turn up with 150 grand and you can have a management contract and you'll pay this amount. I'm back to this old story of like needing money again. And so I went, I went to Alex, who is my partner now, who gave me the 15000 and I And I'd more or less repaid Alex's 15000 And I said, listen, there's an opportunity here. And he had the 150000 And then he had, and then we needed another 100 to kind of, I mean, it was so big. It was a 2,000 capacity venue or 1,500. We, for that money, all we could do is paint it, keep the original concept. We managed to have like five grand to change the signage. And then I went behind the bars and the concept was you paid 20 quid and you could drink as much as you wanted. So you have to imagine on a Saturday <laughs> night you had 800 people oh my God. who had drunk about one to two bottles of vodka or Jack Daniels each. And then it was just, it was, it was a zoo. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm not even going to go into what kind of experience. But I mean, it was, you just, you just saw everything. And then, and then we, we ran that for for two, three months, but it was funny, you know, you just get through it, you just get on with it, you don't like, you don't complain, you're just like, you're just on that, you're on that energy where it's all part of the course and you just do it and you do it. And then we thought, okay, we're going to change it to um, a disco club. So we called it Infernos. And then we invite, invited all our friends. And, and then and then what was big in South London was um, Latin music. So because there's a massive Latin contingent. There's about 250,000 um, um, South Americans, Colombians, Ecuadorians, Peruvians, all in, all in South London. And so this Colombian promoter, Eduardo, said, listen, can, can I rent out the downstairs? So Inferno's actually started on the top floor. And then downstairs, it was like a Club Tropicana where Eduardo had all of these waiters in like white shirts with bow ties. And you had, it was like the Copacabana. You had like a 12-piece band. And it was all table service. It was far more sophisticated than what we were doing upstairs. But it was like the best Latin night in South London. That nine months managing Infernos in the building, it wasn't easy because I had to change the security. I had to get rid of all the old clientele who now still want, you know, still laid an unofficial claim to the building. So that's not easy because you've got to deal with, yeah, you've just got to deal with a lot of people with different motivations. Now you're, you're probably dealing with the street and their boundaries and their, and their way of doing things was very different to, I suppose, my way of doing things. Mm. So you're just, you're just, you're running, once again, you're running on instinct and just running on survival mode and dealing with what gets thrown at you and somehow calibrating that and then you just turn up and you do it again i got through that and then where i ran and we went away for christmas and and infernos still wasn't doing that well and we were just kind of making it and then we came back in january and then it just began to pick up so that was the first bit of like yeah that was the first bit of success where something like wow something's going mm. on here so we were doing well and then it was almost like we had enough money to hire real management because even though i was managing it I was definitely not the best manager because, like, there'd be there's obviously people much more experienced than me, and and we needed a financial controller and a proper ops operations director or CEO. You know, we needed people because mm. we were running. We were now running actually quite a successful business. So we hired. We went out and hired a great ops director, Larry Seymour, and amazing financial controller Hugh Dirty. 
And I say that was the making of us in many ways because the business grew up. So, and, and what we, I think where we did well is we did have a choice. We could have just started using the business and having a lot of cash and money. And we kind of went the other way. We thought, actually, why don't we build a group and do things properly and do things well? And, um, and so let's hire real people. And I'd say that that's a massive decision everyone can make is hire great people. Maybe even sometimes if you can't afford them, hire the best people you can hire. And I think we did that really well because Hugh had come from a publicly traded company. So he knew how to run a public company where you're reporting to a board of directors and banks and shareholders. So that's not easy. And, and Larry had managed, I think, up to like 30 nightclubs and maybe three, 400 staff. So you've got a guy who's run three, four hundred staff, thirty nightclubs, and a and a financial controller who could easily manage over a hundred million of turnover. So actually, we were over, we were overmanaged considering we had one unit. But they were instrumental then in expanding the group. Exactly, because Alex and I decided actually we you know and where we were lucky, and not every entrepreneur gets that we were making enough money to pay two people over a hundred thousand pounds salary, which isn't normal for a small company. But we thought actually, why don't we? hire the best, and now start expanding. So now the money was coming in, and imagine we had no debt. So we got no debt, money's That's coming in. That's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. And and now a great management team. And obviously Larry was 10 times better than me, and Hugh was brilliant as well. So so you, the ship suddenly, Inferno, steadied. So imagine we have this business, but we're in a very precarious position because we've really only got a management contract. And another operator in London who I'm friends with now, but was trying to take the business because he knew that we were in a precarious position and wanted the business. And Michael was increasing the rent as Michael would. And in that mix, um, then I kind of, I was walking past Clapham Common and it was, why isn't there any music festivals in Clapham Common? And then I turned around to my partner and I was like, should we do a festival? And he was like, okay, fine, let's go. So I taught, you know, I knew nothing about music festivals and this is how we ended up in in, uh, non-film and music. We got the license to to take over the, the common. And then it was like, okay, now we need someone to build it. So then I found someone who knew how to build the festivals, like infrastructure, security, stages, lighting. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a massive, massive job. So we found someone to do that. And then we didn't know how to program a festival. So now you've got the license, you can build it. But then what do you put in there? And then we found out that like there was a, a club night in the East London called Lovebox which was, was, was happening once a month at a club called 333 East. And it was just a very cool, it was just a cool club night. It was just, you know, it was, I would say it was of the moment in early 2000. And Lovebox was four guys and two of them were Groove Armada. And I'd say Groove Armada, once again, it was the beginning of sort of dance music, the new wave of dance music we have now. And Groove Armada were, were huge DJs back then. They were, mm. they were really big. So we went to them and were like, do you want to program the... Do you want to program the the stage? And we'll call it we'll call it Love Box. So we took their club night and it turned it into a festival. And then we put the tickets on sale. And it, I mean, it was just crazy. But the ticket, ten thousand tickets sold in three days. So suddenly we're in the festival business. So was that financed purely from the ticket sales, or did you put other investment into it from your? Yeah, from so your we were group? taking money from our venue. Yeah, and then and then um, someone else, another investor, put in some money. Yeah, we, we, we put up the, the seed capital for this festival. And we knew how to operate the bars by now. So at least I knew how to handle all the infrastructure, the logistics, the, the sort of money running the bar. So I knew that I knew operationally how to do it. And then we brought in a producer who knew how to manage the stage. And then Groove Armada basically booked eight different artists for that, that show. So the programming and content was taken care of. So through this, I suppose, made up random way of doing things with no business model, we made it add up. And and then not many sponsors because you don't have many sponsors on year one. And then we lost some money a little bit. Not too bad. It was like we, we lost lost some money, but it wasn't like that bad in year one. But we but we'd, we'd kind of launched this festival. And then what I did is I took the Latin guys from the club and I said, listen, let's create a night festival called Latin Splash. So we actually took that Latin night and then I think we did the biggest Latin festival in London that had been seen, ticketed it 
festival, let's say, because there was a free one of its type ever. So the Saturday was Lovebox and the Sunday was <coughs> Latin Splash. <coughs> and we we flew over, we flew in 120 artists in one day from Colombia, from New York, from uh, Oscar de Leon, from Colombia, El Gran Combo, from like Puerto Rico, salsa dancers. I mean, it was it was amazing. How do you manage to do that? I did it with Eduardo. Okay, so, so, then so I through sat, his contacts in the music Yeah, so Eduardo, industry. like I said, Eduardo, let's just go for it. So he said, well, these are the best, some of the best artists in the world. And then we start, we set up a room. Now we're applying for visas because you've got to get every musician a visa. It's not easy to fly into London. And then, and then we flew in. And then I love football. So I was like, well, let's fly in Valderrama. So Valderrama was the captain of Colombia. <laughs> and he said, like, you're fucking crazy. And I said, no, no, no. We're going to bring in Valderrama because they're going to love the fact that Valderrama's there. We had all these artists flew in and I remember Oscar didn't show up because he flew in with his bottle of whiskey and we have, we've got like cars picking up everyone from the airport. So that became a chaos in its own yeah. running up to summer. So imagine we had a small room and it's like between that, that Christmas and that summer, we're doing Love Box and we're doing the biggest Latin event. It's just all made up good so chaos. How do you manage sort of keep things going amid all the chaos when you're juggling so many different things? I mean, you can't really answer it. You're just, it's like, it's the same recipe. You're just doing it. And you're just making live decisions on the hour and you hope you make good decisions. Is that still how you operate nowadays when you've got so yeah, much I'm going on? I'm more structured on? now. I mean, I'm, I'm more structured because now I understand what I'm doing. Mm. I do understand what I'm doing. I, I finally got it. But back then... You know, how can I really sit there and go, in my 20s, you, you don't understand what's going on. You're, you're just, you're, you're in, a, in, a, in a bit of a bubble and then you start dreaming and you start, and then if you can pay for your dreams, you, you can more or less do whatever you like. Because I wasn't really, I didn't really need anyone. I was quite self-sufficient. And then I was self-sufficient and making things up and dreaming and bringing people together and being a bit fearless and enjoying it. So all kind of that little bit of magic all grew. It just so think of it more like I had total creative freedom to create any project, any way I wanted with my own funds. And then if investor wanted to come in, great. If they didn't, I kind of we did it anyway. From Lovebox, let's say we jumped five years. So during that five years, you know, Lovebox, Lovebox did really well for three years. And then with Michael, I resolved that situation. So I, we bought the building. By resolving that issue with them, we bought the freehold in the building. By buying the building, we had an asset. The banks were like, great, because you've got assets. And then and then in that period, I found Coco. So we found Coco in 2004. So Coco was totally derelict. So it was like 203 Infernos, 203 the festival, 203, 4 and 5. We found Coco in like 204. And then we were refurbishing Coco 204 into 205. And no one wanted in Coco because Coco was like derelict. There was crackheads all around Camden. And it was in such bad condition, no one no one loved that. So so that was 205. And then we launched Coco. And we got lucky, but we launched with um, like Coldplay, who did their X and Y album that year. And Madonna did her Confessions album and streamed that on AOL's homepage. And then Amy broke through Coco on Amy Winehouse on our new bands night. So we kind of went into Coco with Amy, Amy Winehouse breaking through as an unknown artist. And she was just always in the building. And then Coldplay were one of the big bands, you know, most, most probably the biggest new band in 205. And then Madonna came back because she did her first show there. So suddenly Coco's now like flying. So this actually brings me to one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, which is cinema. So you started a TV channel which focuses on um, international film, particularly French film, fashion and style. How did that all come about? So before cinema, I went down, I wanted to do this film about Jamaica in the 70s because back pulling it back to the, when I was in Furnas, all the security were Jamaican. So after we finished... I used to talk to all these Jamaican guys and they were really, they weren't, they weren't English Jamaicans, they were Jamaicans and they really still kind of spoke Patois. So they used to talk about Bob Marley and growing up in the 60s and 70s in Kingston 
<clears throat> and about Michael Manley and Edward Siaga and the CIA and uh, and Fidel Castro. How and because I love film, I was like, okay, I'm going to do a movie about Jamaica in the 70s. That was it. So I went I went to Kingston and I lived in Kingston for about a month um, in a ghetto called like well it wasn't that bad a ghetto but it was ghetto enough called Washington Gardens and that was on the border of a place called Watertown. Watertown was a re- as bad as you like like gunshots every night. And I did my research there, met Lee Scratch Perry, went into his house. I went into the arc where Bob Marley made his music in Lee Scratch Perry's house. Where, But that's where Bob was making his most revolutionary music because he was inspired by Lee Scratch Perry. So I was kind of like there and I met Bunny Whaler and then I met a lot, a lot of the guys who are connected to the streets and the Dons. And then I went and met some people in Parliament who were part of uh, Siaga's uh, administration. And I kind of wrote this, I wrote this treatment and then I wanted to make that film. So it was a fusion of, of this book called Born for Dead, which I'd read and, and everything I'd learned down in Kingston. And then I, I didn't get, I didn't manage to get that film made and I'm still sitting on the, 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 on the film. And so then in 2009, I, was, I, was still, I still had that project around. And it wasn't that I was bored with everything I was doing, but it was just all, it was just all going. And, and everything was just normal for like three, four years, like 2006 to 2009. So then, then it became like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a film chat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a film chat. And by then, I was watching so much indie films. I was watching Korean films, French, Italian, Polish, uh, Danish. I was watching, and I was watching all the good US stuff. So I was so on top of my indie film in general. And the internet was arrived. The internet had arrived. I remember just thinking, and this was this is where it all happened, was, well, how come Hollywood took 100 years of their history? And really what they did is they gave it an editorial perspective. So they created HBO. And HBO had a certain type of film. And then TMC, which was M, um, Turner's MGM library, Turner Network, Turner Movies. It was all classic movies. And then you had AMC, the American Movie Network. And you had... Film 4, who kind of brought to, you know, who were capitalising on the sort of like 90s, new wave, Tarantino films. You know, they were, Film 4 was quite cool. And you had Sundance with Robert Redford. So Robert Redford turned up with Sundance and he had IFC. So if you really look at it, between the English and the Americans, they'd taken really one library of content and they'd created, they'd created like 10 editorial brands for everyone to navigate the history of cinema. But then no one created a home for foreign film. So the French-owned Studio Canal, the Italians owned something called Mediaset, and then all you got in the UK was some foreign films sometimes ending up on like <coughs> BBC One late at night or BBC Four, and then maybe a big French film like La N with Vincent Cassel might creep through. Forget digital, this is pretty, unless you went into primetime or blockbuster and navigated your way through foreign content and had the energy to do that, what was foreign content? Foreign content needs a home, and I'm going to do it. So I'm going to create the brand, and this is before Narcos, Gamora, the killing, all of this. And my what I what I knew was great content is great content. Amazing filmmaking is amazing filmmaking, and actually, who cares that there's subtitles? Subtitles aren't a barrier to quality. So then it was how do you create a film channel? So then I called up Sky. And Sky had something called the open access where you were allowed to, you were still allowed to tender for a free slot on Sky because they had a deal with uh, the government Ofcom where they had to allow entrepreneurs to have a channel. So I received the paperwork and I filled out the paperwork and then my paperwork got accepted. And they said somewhere in the next nine months, you can go on air. But at that point, did you have all the licenses in place or anything like that? Oh so, so, so you now, never let that hold you back. Huh? Yeah, so so I so, put this application in. Yeah. And it says one well, we don't know it was like it was as varied as in six no, I think it was like nine months to twelve months as a waiting list. You're in this waiting list and you go on air. So I'm like, okay, shit. I've gonna I've gotta create this channel. So then what I did was I found a way of interviewing CEOs of other channels and that's how I created the business plan. So I would interview, let's say the guy from the racing channel for two hours, the CEO. Because actually every entrepreneur can do this. If you ever want to learn a business model, interview someone brilliant and ask them loads of questions because that's the best way of finding out from the CEO. So, And I was looking for a CEO, but as I'm looking for a CEO, I'm allowed to also look for, I'm also allowed to understand what's going on. So it was like, oh, you need a satellite. Okay, great, satellite. 
So where do you get the satellite from? And you write down, oh, keep, I need a satellite. <laughs> then, and then he explains, and you need a playout station because the playout station is what um, ingests all the tapes and then beams up the beam to the satellite. So I go, oh, you need a playout station. What's the playout? I mean, well, it's like they're usually based up in Wembley and you pay them a fee and these are those companies. So I'm like, so if you have your playout station and your satellite, you're on air. Done. And then I know I've got to pay Sky the rent. You know, you've got to pay them a fee. Okay, now, next, done. And then and then you need to know about your advertising revenues. You know, like, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you make money? So you make money through advertising revenue and that's done on something called a barb rating. In America, it's called Nielsen. But then you suddenly... Here's the first problem. No one's going to watch foreign content, so our ratings are going to be crap. So if our ratings are going to be crap, then we're going to make no money. So then I go, okay, now we're going to really flip thing on, things on its head, and we're going to create a subscription model. Well, actually, now is quite quite normal. So I'm going to have to make a niche audience pay for this content. And then I needed someone to create the channel because I don't I know nothing about TV. And then I, obviously at the time, a lot of people were going, well, you can't create a TV channel because you know nothing about TV. And I was like, true, this is true, but I can learn. At least I can learn. And I've got enough taste, let's say, because let's say Coco was doing, artistically, Coco was, I, I put put together such an amazing group of people at Coco, like bookers and curators, and I'd given them the, the freedom, and I was I was good at that. Like, when I found brilliant people, I loved giving them the space, and actually I learned from them. So I had my taste, but also I was very happy for someone creatively to have their taste and just learn. I thought, okay... I need a curator for the film channel. So I went to the Institut Francais and I found a, 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 an amazing programmer, a guy called Julien Plant. And, and Julien had programmed the Institut Francais for seven years and programmed something like 3,000 films and had done film festivals and had done Q&As with like amazing French directors. And the Institut Francais, I would say, was most probably the most credible cinema in London because it was for auteurs and for amazing films of all type. And I said, Julian, I know you program cinema, but would you ever want to program a channel? And of course, he went, wow, it sounds like a dream. So I said, just write down in two, three pages what will you do. So he wrote down in two, three pages, and he said, I love it all, but I'd start with French film. <clears throat> and I thought, okay, we'll start with French film, and then we can go into the Italian. And you know, let's, That's why cinema was. It wasn't just because we love French film. It was partly because of Julien, and it was a smart place to start. And also the French the French make 400 films a year, so their library was fresh and dynamic, and we could start with really great films. Julien comes in, he writes his two pages, and then we go to France, and we go meet all the biggest content owners, Pathé, oldest studio in the world, MK2, Universal, and we just give them lists. We said... Listen, we'll pay. This was great. This was so much fun. Because imagine you're English and you turn up in Paris and you say, I'd like to buy 50 of your best films from Truffaut, in the, you know, Truffaut's best films in the 50s mm. and Bertrand Travenier to, to Amélie to Vincennes Cassel's like, latest film, you know? And you say, we'd like to pay £1,000 a film. And they turn around and they're like, are you crazy? Because a nor- just to put it in perspective, normal Hollywood film is 10000 to 100000 and they were like, no. But I said, well, well, listen, how about if we buy 50 of these films and we'll have the non-exclusive? And I said, and I'll buy them for three years. So 50,000 times by three is 150,000. I said, yeah, exactly correct. I'm giving you 150,000 over three years. And I said, they can be non-exclusive. Non-exclusive means you can sell them, sell them to Channel 4, sell them to BBC. But why I, what I knew was by giving them the non-exclusive, it was the exclusive. Why? Because no one was buying the films anyway. And that meant they signed off. So in this trip, we came away with about 300 films. And those 300 films, we owned the rights for, for sometimes one year and sometimes three years. And what was amazing is we owned, we had, so we had, we, we managed to go back to 1948 and buy films all the way up to 2010. So now it's Julien and I, Sky, and now I need like I needed I think something like a million pounds to do this. And I I had some money, so I put my money in and I raised a small bit of money. And once again, because I had enough money to lead it, I didn't have to ask permission. But these things now things I think are way 
it's way harder to raise money. But I had enough money from, from the businesses to put the kind of the, the first capital in. So then we hired like two, three people. We created this brand, Cinema. And it was like cinema was like my film. It was a pe- cinema was actually a piece of art in itself. We spent six months creating this brand, curating the films. So then the credit crunch happened just as we were about to launch, like one month before we were about to launch. So we kind of launched this Imagine Art House French film channel. And we la- launched in the international section, which was like up in 850, channel 850, with a sc- subscription revenue. Can you imagine who's going to go to Channel 850 to watch subtitle films? Mm. And I'm burning money, and then everyone's going, you know, you're mad. I was seeing five, ten years ahead, and because I, when I'm looking at things and I see what I see in the, in the future, it helps me deal with the day, because I'm seeing where I'm going. So what was your plan for the channel then, five so, or ten years ahead? Well, even shorter than that, I already knew that UK, you make no money. So, but I couldn't get into the UK, I couldn't get into the US unless I had to the UK. And the US was almost impossible to get carriage in the US. People don't realize, but to get a TV channel into the US as a UK channel, I would say virtually impossible. But it was like cinema was Coco's sister. Why? Because Coco, a lot of artists, we never paid, and they always wanted to play at Coco because it was a special place. So whether it was Prince or, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers or, or, or Bruno Mars, like there were so many artists playing at Coco, not for money, just, just because they wanted to play. And then we repeated it with, uh, at Coco, and then we repeated it with Cinema. We had, we just had very few viewers, but actually Michael Caine began, began to watch the film and then he loved it. And then Jane Birkin loved the film. Van Sant Cassell said, I want to be your ambassador. So then suddenly on our small channel, we had Vincent Cassell, Jane Burke and Michael Caine introducing the films. So Sky had the reach, but I had the artists. And then what we did is we began to chop up, which I loved. I would spend six to eight hours a day. Uh, We would chop up 1950s black and white French film and I would lace it with Public Enemy or the Rolling Stones. And then you would do that during the day. And those were the 15 minute segments into the film. So what would happen is, instead of making a movie for three years, this was better, you're making a movie every day. Because you during the day, you're making all the content in between the movie and the intros. Then you go home and you watch your own movie. So then you turn on the channel at midnight, and I was watching films, French films, from like midnight till 5 a.m. And you're watching all your, your work. So you're watching trailers, you know, cut with Public Enemy and pu- cut with like Marvin Gaye. Michael Caine, you're like, okay, let's drop Michael Caine introducing this film. And then by the time the film came on, you just felt like... You couldn't wait to see it. Yeah, you couldn't wait to see it. And actually, that was my premise, was build something, um, build an amazing experience. And then, and I always said to people, if we give people a journey to these films, they're going to love them. So where we innovated and what we did was we changed, we changed how foreign content was, I believe, globally in the terms of no one had ever given that content, the kind of love that we gave it and the kind of artistic direction, and then with the sound of the street, making it current. So now it was this kind of amazing experience where we had a stage. As a company, we had a full-blown studio and a TV network and no board of directors. So you're just free. So you go to Paris one day and interview Sophie Massa. Then the next day you'd come back to London and watch Pete Doherty on, on like Pete Doherty on, on, on stage and Amy. And then you'd go to Cannes and do, you know, do, do something with L'Oreal and like Romain Duress or Jacques Audiard, you know, and we were filming in Cannes. And then you'd go to New York and, and then, and we're just in this amazing mess and I'm losing, a, I'm losing a lot of money in cinema and I'm making money some in, in my other business. So I'm sort of like, making it all count and I've got the worst credit crunch in history and everyone said no way will they invest in content so this is this was actually the hardest point in my career but in 2010 when I was telling people actually it's the birth of the internet and foreign content and we're going to own this own this space and we could almost create a Netflix of foreign content and then something special happened in 2012 which was I was in New York and I got an email from Martin Scorsese's production office called uh, Sicalia, Sicalia Productions. And it said, um, hi, Cinema, uh, Martin, Martin, Martin's in London. He's making that film, Hugo. He would like some of your interviews because he's been watching the channel. 
So I wrote back and I was like, and obviously remember now, I got into this whole mess by watching Martin's movies as a kid. So I call up Julien, I said, Marty, Marty wants our stuff, man. So we start sending him over all our interviews. And, and the one quick bit to tell on the story, I managed to get Sky to change their ruling because I got uh, uh, a, the director, the producer who produced The Madden of King George to give me a letter with some other actors to say that actually it was unfair of Sky to say that films shown in the international section, it wasn't a real movie channel just because it was foreign content. So I moved Cinemoir into the movie section in the UK. Oh, fantastic. And by moving it into the same territory as like Channel 4, our subscriptions mm. picked up. And then I got approached by an entrepreneur, a lady in LA, and she said, basically, I would like to show this channel to DirecTV. And DirecTV were bigger than Sky. So DirecTV and 20 million homes in the US, and their distribution's fantastic. So they're the Sky. If you're on Direct, you're, you're, you're on the best distribution you can get. And she said, I want to take it to them. So, And then I got this email in the first few days of 2.12, and it said, um, hi, Ollie. Um, you know, Marty's, Marty, Marty's ready to meet in New York. So I was like, amazing. So I fly to New York, and they said, I went into his office. That must have been amazing. Yeah, of course it was, because I respected, you know, I, I respected everything he'd done. And that, that for me was, he was special because I, I just... And I loved his films and I pulled those films back to my childhood. And, you know, he was sitting there in his chair, as you'd expect, and he had his sort of arms draped over his um, over his sofa. And he was very gracious and he offered me in and, you know, welcomed me in. And then, you know, he talked in his Marty way like you'd expect him to do. And he was, he was just amazingly kind and generous. And he said, it's my favourite film channel. And I, obviously I didn't know his story. He said, oh, I need to tell you something. I lived in London for three months and I made Hugo every day. And then at night I'd watch your channel. And he goes, oh, and it's the best channel I've ever seen. And I love the way that you created all of these films and the interviews. And it was great because there he was telling me that he'd love what I'd created. But actually I was there because partly because of what he had created. So it was quite a nice, you know, it was quite amazing to have the guy go, that he just loved endeavour of the whole thing. You know, he loved it. And he said he complained. He went to Paris and France and he complained at the hotels that they didn't have the channel. So he was complaining that they didn't have this channel <laughs> cinema. And he said, I'll, I'll do anything to help you in America. So that that was like, yeah, that was just, what can I say? It was great. And then Daphne turned up and said, I've got a deal for us on on direct tv so now the dream can you imagine the dreams realized one million we started with a million pounds and i battled through those years what do you think is key to persevering or or just getting through those times where it all seems to be falling apart or just not going in the way you wanted to go well no it was going the way, way i wanted but falling apart is close to it but it's not quite it's more like how do it's more like how do you deal with the jeopardy you don't have to go as far as I will go. So that's not that wouldn't be my advice or, or the story I think is relevant to say you have to have that much jeopardy. So some people might say I'm reckless, but I suppose the only thing I understand is what I believe in what I do. So I understand that language, you know, like everyone's got to understand themselves. So I understand that I believe in myself. So because I do that, to a fault maybe or not to a fault, then I can get my results because you won't stop me if I want to go there, to the point of I will almost bet everything I have, which is there's jeopardy in that. And, and I'm not saying that's clever or, or brilliant in any way. It's just me. It's like I've done that on two, three occasions and I've come through it. Coco was a similar issue. We, we, we ran out of money at Coco and I was told I had to sell it. And actually I took out another loan. And by taking out that extra loan, that bought me six months. And by buying me that six months, we've now had 16 years and in, in that building and we've looked after like 7 million people and hosted 5,000 artists. If you think about every journey, you can want to give up every day. I mean, you know, that, that's always an option in life, right? Isn't, isn't life always, you know, life will always give you that amazing option to kind of go, yeah, take, take the easy route or why push yourself? But I'll go for it, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll just go all the way. That's it. So the latest project then is this £40 million development of Coco. That's going to be huge. Yep. This vision started in 2.15, or slightly before, more like actually 2.13, but I've now been working on it every day since 2.15. But around 2.13, 
once I got cinema up on air. So we got cinema up on air and we were in 20 million homes. So, so that was an amazing. Ama- yeah, amazing moment. And actually the only other film channel with our distribution was um, the BBC. So around 2012, 2013, I was, I was in LA a lot and I met the guys who had the software and built the software and they had two channels. They had something called Twitch, which Amazon owned and Justin TV and Twitch was for video gamers. And I met those guys and they, they were telling me all about the software that they had developed. And and I could just see that streaming was just going to kind of cut through. So I thought, okay, how about a music platform for film and music and subculture? But there's a twist to it. It would be physical and digital. So what you'd do is you would you'd create a you'd create in essence another channel instead of this channel ending up on on terrestrial like Direct TV. You didn't need permission. You could just do it through the internet, but with a studio. So then I came back to London and I looked at the building and I found two buildings at the back of Coco. And those two buildings, one was a pub built in 1860 and one was an office. And I kind of worked out that if you put these two buildings together, you could stick an elevator shaft up the building and that would free up the airspace because there's actually airspace on the top of Coca but you can't get to the air unless you find it if you have an unless you have an elevator shaft and Coco's listed so you can never touch Coco it's listed you know it's grade two star listed so I went to the landlord and I and I said listen why didn't you you know buy these buildings and if you give me the planning money I'll go get planning permission and I'll come up with a a, a plan to put the whole building back together. And he said, okay. So once again, we go on another journey, you know, and, but, but this was a, this was a much bigger project now. So it was, you know, you're buying the buildings for a lot of money and, and then you needed, you know, a lot of money to, for the planning and the architects. So I assembled, I got the team from uh, Chilton Firehouse, you know, great, amazing architect, David Archer, and, and my interior designer, James Lees, who um, did the interior design behind Chilton Firehouse. And so we, we spent the last, three to four years doing thousands of sketches and then we got planning permission around 18 months ago and then I've spent the last 18 months on the interior design and then the last bit is the functionality and the technical rollout where we're going to wire the whole building up to stream content from all over the building so that's where it comes full circle to creating a modern day media house where you can stream content from seven different stages and then we'll bring bring the building back to 1950 when the bbc owned it because it was actually a radio center it was a broadcast center for the bbc and they used to they, the the goon show was actually recorded there with peter sellers and the rolling stones performed there and went live on air from the bbc in the 60s so we're now building a new digital radio station so i'm pulling it back i'm pulling the distribution back to actually what it was in the 60s so now it's sort of catching up where I believe the physical and the digital will get all blurred. It should be one. It doesn't have to be one, but I think where, where, where I, I think it's an amazing period is we've had the last 10 years of the big juggernauts from YouTube and Amazon, Facebook, and all of those guys. And everyone's got used to absorbing content. In a, in, in, and there is a lot of great t- content, but two things. It's not curated. It's only digital. There's no independent spirit. There's independent content within those platforms, but those brands don't reflect anything human and you can't touch them. There's nothing physical. You're just, they're out in the ether. So I think where we're, we're going to become something, I believe, where we've got an, an exciting proposition, you know, or exciting uh, new way of absorbing media is that we're going to create a digital platform with radio content and live content and licensed content, so a little bit of like what we did at Cinema. And we're gonna bring it all together in a in a physical and digital way so that you can watch the content anywhere in the world, but also feel that there's a human element to the content and know that you can actually go to the studio. So it'd be like if Netflix had a studio, <coughs> and we will have a studio. So we'll have a digital platform where people can engage in the content <coughs> and then they're gonna actually be gonna able to walk into the channel or walk into the studio. And then we're gonna, what we're gonna, I'm going to do everything that I've always done. I'm going to work with a lot of amazing people and allow them the freedom of expression to make music, perform music, produce beats, and artistically do what they want with my team. And we're going to help them. And then we're going to put it out there and we're going to curate it. So really, by you know, by the time we launch, it won't really... It'll be about the building. Of course, it'll be about this amazing building and experience within the building. But it'll be greater than that. It'll be about... A building representing, I think, London music and global music in the heart of Camden. 
curated, independent, and brought to you in a way that is quite free flowing. So it'll be a, it'll be a home for it'll be a home for music discovery, and and hopefully we'll we'll do something great and people will enjoy it. Two questions I always ask all of my guests, and the first one is, what is success for you? I mean, I suppose success is just being allowed to do what I do. So as long as I'm I'm free, for me that's success. That's the most important thing. You know, I'm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't last a month in, in someone's company. Mm. I'd be fired. So success for me is me being allowed to do what I do. And then because I'm obsessed with travel, I always ask everyone for a travel tip. They're, they're, the Iolian Islands are great off the north of Sicily. So there's seven islands there, Stromboli um, and Panarea. Uh-huh. Those are great. They're, those are always like, they're, they're always fun. Cuba's amazing, especially if you go into like... Pinal del Rio and all down, you know, through Cuba. Cuba is always an amazing place to visit. Every, every, everywhere's got, there's, you know, there's adventure around it. Mm. Every every corner. Well, thanks very much. Cheers. I found that so inspiring. Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It'll give the series a boost and help other people find it. And you can find out more about what I'm passionate about on my website, secondsister.com or Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the first of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love. 